This is the story of a letter signed by 10 men, every single one of them former defense secretaries of the United States, both Republicans and Democrats, going all the way back to Dick Cheney in 1989. You might have missed it at the time, but it's something that we can already look back on as really significant. It was published just three days before those shocking scenes in Washington, DC. New videos now emerged of the chaos and the violence. This officer was trapped, pinned by a metal door and screaming for help that didn't come. Anger at Donald Trump, accused of inciting this, is growing all the time. This was the invasion of Capitol Hill by rioters who poured into the sacred halls of American democracy, urged on, incited by the president himself. Something's wrong here, something's really wrong, can't have happened, and we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. The letter from all of those Pentagon chiefs published in the Washington Post explicitly warned the acting defense secretary and his subordinates that they could face criminal charges if they interfered in the outcome of the election. And it reminded them that they swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic that they did not swear to support an individual or a party. There's never been anything like it, a letter in which every living defense secretary is warning as one that the president is a threat to democracy and that the military should have no part in it. So I wanted to understand what inspired this historic letter, who organized it, who was it aimed at, and what was it designed to head off? To put it another way, I guess the question is really, what did they think that Donald Trump was capable of? I'm Basha Cummings, and this week on the Slow Newscast, at the end of Trump's four outlandish years in office, we're asking an unthinkable question. Did the President of the United States just try to stage a coup to stay in power? Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Efforts to involve the U.S. Armed Forces in resolving election disputes would take us into dangerous, unlawful, and unconstitutional territory. Chuck Hagel was one of the signatories of that letter. Hagel is a very American hero. He volunteered for the Vietnam War, where he was an infantry squad leader. He fought alongside his brother, and he was awarded two Purple Hearts. He stepped back from politics after 12 years as a Republican senator for Nebraska, but then he was brought back by President Obama to serve again as his defense secretary, at a time when US forces were still in Iraq and Afghanistan, as Russia invaded Ukraine, and as the Syrian conflict really rapidly escalated. And Secretary Hagel agreed to talk to us about the letter and he joined us from his home just outside of Washington, D.C. Can you tell me first how that letter came about? Well, some former senior Defense Department officials who uh, served in uh, the George W. Bush administration, they contacted me and said that they had written a draft of this op-ed and they were contacting the other former secretaries to see if we thought that it had any merit. I did look at it and uh, I made some changes. I talked to a couple of my former Secretary of Defense colleagues about it. And I think we all agreed that this was an important statement to make at a critical time in our country. We were 
in a very dangerous environment in this country. Mm-hmm. When you look at what had been said by President Trump, even before the election, but after he lost the election, he said it was fraudulent. He said the election was stolen. He encouraged his supporters to go out and change it. He made phone calls, intimidating governors of states, threatening governors of states. There was talk in the White House with the president about declaring martial law in the United States, Mm -hmm. uh, about uh, using the Insurrection Act to bring the military in. He, the president, was talking about having military rerun the elections. This kind of conversation was very disturbing. And judging from this president's record the last four years, his erratic behavior, his erratic conversations, we were all concerned that uh, leading up to January 20th, we may see violence in this country. We may see bloodshed. And unfortunately, uh, that's what we did see. But we wanted to, in this op-ed, send a message to the uniform career military that their first obligation was to the Constitution that they swore an oath to not to a president, not to a commander-in-chief, not to a political party, but the law of the land. We are a nation of laws. We follow the laws. That's the basis of our Constitution. And free, fair elections are are a bedrock in that. Peaceful transition of power from one administration to the other is critical. We also want to send a message to the citizens of this country to let them know the responsibilities we have as citizens, yes, but also the responsibilities of the military. So Uh, For all those reasons, and probably a few more, we agreed to sign that op-ed, which we're glad we did. So so just to be clear, to your knowledge, the reason for this letter coming into being was because of a particular moment and a sense that you and others had of of an escalating threat, not because of a specific piece of intelligence or because you felt that there was something imminent that required this kind of intervention from you all. That's correct. It was a combination, an accumulation of these actions and words, especially over the last 60 days that concerned us very much. Was there a former defense secretary who was a controlling mind on it? Because one of our sources that we spoke to suggested that it was Dick Cheney who was kind of initiating it and kind of calling round. As I said, it was the former senior defense officials in the George W. Bush administration, and they first took it to Vice President Cheney. And my understanding is he was the first former Secretary of Defense who saw the letter. And then they called me and they called the other secretaries as well. We should just pause for a moment to take this in. The letter from all those 10 living former Defense Secretaries was organized by senior Pentagon officials who worked in the George W. Bush administration under Vice President Dick Cheney and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Cheney was the first to see it and set off the process of gathering all the other former Defense Secretaries together to defend the Constitution. Cheney and Rumsfeld, remember, they're the neocons behind the Iraq war and the war on terror. We used to think that they were the outliers, and yet here they are, in a moment of danger, trying to hold the line. It's also worth noting that Liz Cheney, the former vice president's daughter, now a congresswoman and the third highest ranking Republican in the House, is the most senior member of her party to have voted for Trump's impeachment in recent days. The President of the United States summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack, she said. I think that letter was unprecedented. Mm. Certainly in my lifetime, I don't recall all of the living former Secretaries of Defense coming together with an opinion piece like that. All 10 of us come from different political philosophies, backgrounds. We work for different presidents, work for Democrats, work for Republicans. But we had this in common. And I think in looking back over the last week, especially, that message was important to send. And we're not out of this time either. I mean, we've got challenges ahead. And I think the damage that's been done to this country, the depth of the polarization, the political polarization, the the divide, which has caused great paralysis and great anger and bitterness and lack of trust, lack of confidence in our system in our institutions, in our leadership, that's going to be with us for a while. I mean, I think we'll get through it, but it's going to be a long, painful way back. 
One of the sort of key events, particularly with how the military have been used and played in by Trump, was that moment during the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, of course, with the sort of photo op outside the church. We've just had to run about a block as police moved in. We've been uh, fired at with rubber bullets. My cameraman has been hit. Uh, we've also seen tear gas being used. Here we go, they're moving through again. What did you think when you saw that? And was that what was in your mind when you signed this letter? That episode in Washington regarding Black Lives Matter was was certainly at the top of our concerns. But as I said before, it was an accumulation of statements made of actions that had occurred in a lot of disturbing scenes that we had witnessed, certainly over the last four years, but over the last two years. But it was just further evidence of the divide in this country, the bitterness in this country, the manipulation, the political manipulation of President Trump over his followers, the political manipulation by a lot of people for the wrong reasons, not to unify this country, not to bring this country together, not to take this country forward. I hope you don't mind, but I'd love to sort of do a kind of close reading of a couple of lines in in the letter because they really struck me as being in some ways quite pointed. There was one line first where you all say the effort to involve the military. And I just wondered which particular effort you were referring to there, or again, were you talking about the sort of general militarized escalation? Well, we were talking about the general military escalation. There had been conversations in the White House with the president about invoking the Insurrection Act. That means using the United States military to take control of all functions of government. That's not the role of military. In fact, we have a constitutional divide between the military and our civilian government. Our civilian government controls the military, not the other way around. The Insurrection Act would give the military control over everything. That escalating conversation, and then the president talking about resorting to martial law in this country to have the military rerun the elections, that's just astounding. That's unfathomable. We've never had a situation like that in this country. It's blatantly against the Constitution. And another line I wanted to ask you about, you wrote... Civilian and military officials who direct or carry out such measures. And I wondered, is that pointed? Were you thinking of or referring to specific people in that line? Well, not specific people, but we're talking about the commanders, those uh, senior commanders in the line of the chain of command. When the commander in chief would order a commander to take some action, whatever action, that was addressed at all commanders who receive orders. In our constitution, in our military law, an officer can refuse to carry out an illegal order if they feel that the order is illegal. And again, this is to remind our military leaders and our commanders of their responsibilities in the constitution. I have great confidence, great faith in our military leaders. These men and women are dedicated to this country. There's no doubt in my mind that if it came to it, our military leaders would rise to the occasion and not carry out an illegal order if it was issued by the commander-in-chief. But we thought it was important to reinforce them, reinforce not only their understanding of the oath of office they take, but let them know that we, the former 10 living secretaries of defense, and this country, the civilians of this country, would be behind them if they declined to carry out an order, an illegal order from the president, that they had support. Thank you. I mean, as you say, this this letter is unprecedented. So it is so useful to hear you talk about the sort of the, the ideas and the motivations behind some of those lines. I wanted to move now to the events of the 6th of January, another unprecedented event uh, in American history. What do you think happened on that day? What's your interpretation of that day? Well, it's pretty clear to me as we are now assembling intelligence over the last week, emails and messages sent between these groups and political leaders that the president of the United States incited these people to move, to take action against the United States because the invasion, the destruction, the occupation of the United States Capitol wasn't something that just came out of nowhere. The morning of January 6th, he spoke to the rally 
And he said, let's march to the Capitol. The things that he has been saying, not just January 6th that incited this, but all the other rhetoric in the last two months that brought all of these people together, all these armed people, all these people with intent to take prisoner members of Congress and try these members of Congress as traitors. How did you personally feel watching the events of the 6th unfold? Because it must have been a really horrifying moment for you. I was watching it on TV. It was horrifying to me, as it was to, I think, every American citizen. What happened on January 6th has never happened in this country uh, since the War of 1812, and that was a foreign enemy. Uh, That's when the British invaded Washington and invaded the Capitol, invaded the White House. And so I was horrified. The damage that was being done, the destruction, the people who obviously died, the complete lack of respect for this country, for its laws, for its people, was astounding. We've never, ever seen anything like it. And the word coup has been used quite a bit over the last week to try and interpret what happened and to understand. Is this a word that you would use? Do you feel comfortable using that word? Well, I think it's an appropriate word. I don't think it overstates, especially now as we are a few days away from what happened. We're picking up intelligence, we're picking up emails, we're picking up a lot of things that we didn't know on January 6th about what the intent was of these people. The intent was to overthrow the government. And I suppose part of the reason that we might feel reluctant to use these words is because in some odd way, a lot of what happened on the 6th had sort of been normalized for us all, that we had been prepared for it by Trump's rhetoric. We knew that he was going to try and do something. And in that sense, that might have inured us slightly to what ended up happening. Well, that may be. And as I've said, that's what incited it and led to it. Uh, And that's been going on for months before the election, as he said, months and months before an election. If I lose this election, it's because it was stolen from me. It was because it was fraudulent. And he said many times before and after the election, we need to take the country back. Well, what does that mean to you? Uh, That's a pretty clear indication. We need to take the country back. That's a coup. That's a signal for a coup. So, yes, we were prepared for something. Unfortunately, uh, we were not enough prepared, should have been prepared much, much better. There's no excuse for that. Indeed. Mr. Secretary, thank you. I, I wondered now if you could read a couple of the key paragraphs from the letter that you signed, because it would really help, I think, our listeners understand some of those key points that you made. Okay. Efforts to involve the U.S. Armed Forces in resolving election disputes would take us into dangerous, unlawful, and unconstitutional territory. Civilian and military officials who direct or carry out such measures would be accountable, including potentially facing criminal penalties for the grave consequences of their actions on our republic. Acting Defense Secretary Christopher C. Miller and his subordinates, political appointees, officers, and civil servants are each bound by oath, law, and precedent to facilitate the entry into the office of the incoming administration and to do so wholeheartedly. They must also refrain from any political actions that undermine the results of the election or hinder the success of the new team. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. UK business leaders are quietly confident that better times are coming. More than half of those who responded to the recent EY CEO Outlook survey believe their profitability would increase in 2024. As businesses look to the future, transformation is clearly front and centre on the 2024 CEO agenda, with the vast majority of leaders planning to maintain or accelerate their transformational change in 2024. With 76% of CEOs in agreement that AI will deliver transformative efficiency benefits to their organisation, how can AI be put to use to enhance innovation efforts? Find out how integrating AI into your business could minimise the negative impacts on the workforce, boost productivity and improve overall employee experience by reading the full report at ey.com. And finally, Mr Secretary, do you feel that Trump should be facing criminal prosecution? Actions have consequences. Every one of us, regardless of his or her station in life, is accountable. The president of the United States certainly is accountable to the people of the United States. Any elected official in a democracy is accountable to the people of the United States. Uh, This isn't an authoritarian government. This is not a dictatorship. Democracies are about accountabilities. That's the only way democracy can work. The way that Trump thinks about the presidency is that he's the king and he's in charge. He thinks of the presidency really in the terms of being the head of state and almost like being an elected king, an elected monarch. That's Fiona Hill. She's a Russia expert and was part of the Trump administration's national security team. And her story is pretty amazing. She was brought up in a working class family in Bishop Auckland in the northeast of England. She was the daughter of a midwife and a coal miner. And when the last pit closed, her dad, Alfred, dreamed of making a life in the US, but he never actually left his hometown in the end. His daughter did though. She became a Russia expert, a dual American-British citizen, and she served as an advisor to three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and most recently, Donald Trump. And you might remember in 2019, after she left the White House, she was a central figure as a witness in the first Donald Trump impeachment hearings. And it's remarkable now, isn't it, that we have to distinguish between Trump impeachments. Then she told Congress about the way that Trump's political team had tried to create a false narrative that it was Ukraine and not Russia that had interfered in the 2016 US election. The impact of the successful 2016 Russian campaign remains evident today. Our nation is being torn apart. Truth is questioned. Our highly professional and expert career foreign service is being undermined. US support for Ukraine, which continues to face armed aggression, has been politicized. That time, Trump was impeached after a whistleblower revealed that US aid to Ukraine was being blocked by the president. And it was being blocked because Trump was trying to pressure the Ukrainian government to open up a corruption investigation into Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. And I have to say that sometimes reading this stuff out loud, you can't help but marvel at what an astonishing and relentless soap opera the last four years have been in American politics. After the events of the last two weeks, it's easy to forget that there were accusations of collusion, there was the whole Mueller investigation, the Stormy Daniels scandal, and actually Fiona Hill, working in the White House throughout 2017 to 2019, had an insider's view on so much of it up close working with Trump. So I wanted to know how she read the events of January 6th, the storming of the Capitol, given all that she knows about Trump and his attitude to power. His whole attitude towards power was it's personal. He didn't seem to believe in any checks and balances. He had a complete fascination with Putin, but not just Putin, with anyone that he thought had autocratic or absolute power So he wanted to be them, the the people who were able to operate without any impediments whatsoever. And that was really, you know, I think at the the root of the fascination with Putin that everybody, you know, becomes uh, so concerned about. It wasn't doing Putin's bidding or, you know, kind of thinking about Russia in any specific way. It was just, this is the kind of man who's doing the kind of things I want to do too. He was sort of claiming, you know, America as his crown and as his throne. 
hundreds of years after you know the United States threw off Britain. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, there's some of the kind of comical aspect to this. It's very sad um, as well, but it's also tragic and extraordinarily dangerous. In the two years that I was there, I became increasingly concerned about our own domestic political situation. And by the time I left the National Security Council in July of 2019, I'd become frankly more worried about domestic threats to our national security than I was about the external environment, which of course is still very serious. So let's plunge straight in to what happened on January the 6th in Washington. It was a truly terrifying, bewildering moment. What did you see happening on that day? Well, the point was January 6th wasn't a one-off. You have to look at the larger context. I mean, clearly it was very shocking to see a mob storming uh, Capitol and basically penetrating into the halls of this building and trying to hunt down members of Congress and the Senate. But there was a great lead up to this. And I think that that's the most important thing to see the context. So people have been deliberating what was this? Was it a riot? Was it an insurrection? Was it an insurgency? All kinds of labels applied to it. But again, this was one episode in a whole series of efforts by President Trump to try to stay in office and to overturn the results of the November 2020 election. And so you've publicly and quite forcefully made the argument that this was a coup. That's the word that we should use for it. So take me through that. Why do you think that it's a coup? And what is your sort of checklist that you think means that it meets that bar? Well, it was a certain kind of coup. It was a self-coup. And I think that that's a kind of a difficult thing to see because clearly President Trump was still in power when this all occurred. So I think that's what makes it, in the first instance, quite difficult for people to contextualise. The second point is that most people tend to think of coups as sudden and involving the use of the military, the deployment of military or paramilitary force to seize power. And of course, that didn't happen either. We saw a mob and many of the participants in this mob were actually armed and wearing body armour and had weapons of some description, even be it flagpoles and crutches that we saw them you know, deploying against the Capitol Hill police. But the United States military didn't take part in this. And in fact, they stepped back. But if we look at the broader context of the actions that President Trump has taken since the presidential election in November, we can see a broader pattern. So he did try to manipulate the military into supporting uh, his efforts to stay in power. We've seen over and over again, President Trump refer to the generals in the military as his generals. We saw during the Black Lives Matter protest in the summer, President Trump draw out the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, and also the Defence Secretary, Mark Esper, into a photo op outside a historic church near the White House, in which he had paramilitary units uh, from the Park Service, the Secret Service, services who were basically manning the perimeter of the White House, clear out peaceful protesters from that square so that they could walk across. There was a huge blowback after this because everybody saw that the president was trying to manipulate the military. And after that, uh, General Milley admitted that he'd made a big mistake, as did the Defence Secretary. The other point is here, the president has manufactured a constitutional crisis. He lost the election. And the second element of this is, you know, what I and many others are calling the big lie. He's used uh, communications in the media to basically assert that he won the election, that Joe Biden illegitimately stole the election, uh, Democrats stole the election, a whole variety of other forces, a kind of manufactured domestic enemy involving all kinds of different uh, people, movements, groups, uh, stole the election away from him. And so this is a constitutional crisis that he's trying to rally his supporters behind. And he's been saying this for months, even before the election, whenever his poll ratings dropped. So we already prefigured this. So, so in your view, from the military, in terms of trying to play them in to his you know, his use of communications and even the post office in his legal challenges to some of the results, to the way that he's been treating government institutions, that that is a sort of a checklist of things that he's been doing that would suggest to you that this was a sort of organised, clear end game for him. Yes, that's absolutely right. Now, the organisational side of it is you know, rather complex because there's also a lot of evidence that you know, many people were organising themselves online through Facebook pages, Twitter, 
all kinds of right wing parlor uh, websites, parlor exactly, in support of him. There's not um, a great deal of evidence that he was directing this, but of course he was inciting it. And this is again where the communications comes in, because in traditional coups in history, you saw people storm the post office and the telegraph to try to seize control of them. As you mentioned, he put a loyalist in charge of the post office and he was trying to slow down the delivery of ballots during uh, the election. And he already started to discredit this and said it would be rigged. And he'd already, as said, made efforts to slow down uh, the delivery of the ballots to, in effect, render them ineligible to be counted because of the delay in uh, delivery. Then if you think about the telegraph, there is no telegraph these days, but there's Twitter. And the president had an account on Twitter with 88 million followers. And Twitter became like the telegraph, a medium of direct messaging. And so the president was able to seize the airways, so to speak. Plus, he had Fox News, MediaMax, One American Network. He was able to use Facebook very effectively. And for a long time, none of those outlets refuted his lies. Under the guise of free speech, he was allowed to lie freely about events and what had happened. And so he is not repudiated at any point, and neither of his supporters and neither of many people in the media, uh, the idea that he won the election. And so that is a major point here too. He did seize control of communications in various very effective ways. And Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms realise it somewhat belatedly and cut him off. It's curious, isn't it, Fiona, that we all knew that this was coming. You know, we all were watching Trump, listening to him, hearing the big lie, as you say. And in some ways, the sort of the fact that it was so in front of all of us, we were all watching it happen, strangely gave Trump some protection because it became normalised. So that that we sort of were watching this slow moving, as you say, sort of self-coup. And yet somehow that stopped anyone from acting or from trying to do anything about it. How do you see the sort of the openness of what he was doing? Yeah, you see, this is spot on because normally, again, in a coup, which is why a lot of people find it very hard to get their heads around this, you have a clandestine conspiracy. And, you know, there are things that were happening on the dark web, all kinds of exchanges with right wing groups and various supporters of the president that might not have been in plain view for everyone else. But every single thing that President Trump did was obvious. He was the same person as I learned from my interactions with him in the first parts of the administration when I was there, the same in private and in public. There is no secret about anything that he does. And the fact that somebody acts in public like that, as you said, it normalizes it and it makes people think, well, that's fine then. There's no secret plot here. He's doing everything and no one is reacting. And that is also the problem. He did get pushback from people. And he sacked many of his cabinet officials who tried to stand up to him to resist it. He also, of course, threatened, again publicly, members of Congress from the Republican Party who didn't want to go along with this effort to stay in power. And again, he telegraphed that he wanted to stay in power. For the first two years when he was under the scrutiny of the Mueller investigation, he constantly talked about the fact that he was being cheated out of his term as president, that he was being treated unfairly. He said this at every single turn. He wrote it over and over again on his Twitter feed. Every rally, he talked about this. And basically, everyone became just inured to the fact that he was basically saying that he deserved not just one, but two terms and maybe even three terms. And at one point in uh, various interviews, he talked about endless terms. He talked about no term limits. Whenever he heard about, say, President Xi of China busting through the tenure limits that there used to be on senior officials in the Chinese leadership or someone like President Erdogan in Turkey, you know, staying in power, or you, you think about Vladimir Putin in Russia, who this year in 2020 also put in motion amendments to the Russian constitution to be able to stay in the presidency theoretically out to 2036. Trump would say something like, well, that's great. Maybe I could do the same thing. And he said it so often that people said, oh, you know, he's just saying it. So you can see here some of the same hallmarks. I mean, essentially, this is an authoritarian playbook that many of us are familiar with, but people were just incredulous that President Trump would try it. Mm. But that brings me really perfectly to my next question, which is about kind of Trump's four-year-long attempt to stress test the American democratic system. 
Where do you think the gravest stress fractures have appeared? Where do you think that the real damage has been done and how will we get out of it? Well, I think when you start to go down this checklist again and then you see who pushed back, I think we can be heartened by the fact that there was a lot of pushback at the state and local government level. So American federalism really, I think, helped to save the day in this regard because in the US elections, there's a lot of complex oversight the whole structure of the elections actually are very complex and make it very difficult for it to be manipulated from the top or even penetrated from the outside. You have uh, the state's electoral officials and all of those did their job and they did their job in a really admirable fashion and they pushed back. I mean, we saw the president haranguing uh, state election officials, calling them to the White House, calling them on the telephone, and they all stood firm. They rejected his efforts. Also, the courts, the court system, because the president did try to stack the judiciary. Now, he called them his judges, but of course, they were conservative judges who were pushed through and appointed by the Republican members of Congress and the three Supreme Court justices that were pushed through in President Trump's term. But he kept talking them, talking about them rather, as his judges and his justices. And he was convinced that they would swear things in his favor. They did not. And he got an unprecedented number of votes. Joe Biden got an even larger unprecedented number of votes. But nonetheless, President Trump has a significant base. And members of Congress, even after the events of January 6th, Republican members of Congress didn't step back from their efforts to challenge. But those Republicans in Congress, quite probably scared to have Trump target them on social media and destroy their careers, went along with this fiction about a rigged election. That's where we have a major problem because we have members of Congress who are not telling the truth about what happened to their constituents. And we now have millions of disaffected people who still believe that the president won the election, even uh, when Joe Biden was officially confirmed in office. Fiona Hill sat in on hundreds of Trump calls at the White House. So when the tape emerged recently of Trump putting pressure on the Georgia official Brad Raffensperger to, in his words, find 11,000 votes, well, it sounded pretty familiar. I mean, obviously, seeing that happen, that was really you know, something completely dramatic. And, you know, obviously, I was involved as a fact witness in the impeachment in January of 2020. And the impetus for that impeachment trial was a similar phone call to Ukraine to cajole and intimidate him, in effect, into launching a spurious investigation into uh, then presumed presidential candidate Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden. All that he was thinking about was re-election you know, for the whole period from you know, the beginning of 2020 onwards. And obviously before that too, in the anticipation of trying to ensure that he got a second term. And so, so many of these phone calls and these efforts were very tied just to the very narrow personal uh, agenda of keeping himself in power. Did you find it slightly surreal to find yourself serving in an administration that was starting to sort of ape some of the leaders around the world that you had studied for so many years in your sort of close study of authoritarianism? Of course. And it's, I mean, it really, it's a cautionary tale. I mean, one of the reasons that I did also decide to go in was I had a lot of discussions with friends and colleagues, you know, who like myself have looked at authoritarian regimes in other countries. And we were all concerned as to whether... US democratic institutions would be up to the test. And you could see that our society was very vulnerable. Uh, the biggest source of conspiracy theories these days is the United States itself. Truth has broken down here too. We're no longer a fact-based society in the way that we were. So I did really feel that you know, we had to pull together, and it's not just my view, but everybody else's view to try to do something. So there was that sense of concern and trepidation. I did you know, anticipate that the institutions would hold together. And as I said, I think they have, but boy, have they been damaged as a result. The amazing thing about January 6th, that terrible spectacle, is that everyone saw it coming. Trump talked about it for months and drove his most ardent supporters to Washington to save their country. And yet still, there was so little done to secure Congress. 
It was as if the very openness of it, the mouthiness of it on Twitter, gave Trump and his supporters cover. But let's just recap, because five people died, including a member of the Capitol Police. Rioters invaded the Senate chamber and ransacked offices. Elected representatives had to hide in terror, making frantic calls for military backup. More than 70 people have now been charged in connection with the violence, including many of them who were captured in viral pictures and videos. The FBI has reported credible intelligence of plans for armed protests at all 50 state capitals on Inauguration Day. And then Trump, banned from every social media platform, has been impeached again. The first president in history to be impeached twice. But there's more. Did Trump break the law to hold on to power. We know he's going to face an impeachment trial on a charge that he incited insurrection. If he's found guilty by senators, he could be barred from public office in future. But the question is, could he also face criminal charges and jail time? I wanted to hear from somebody with experience of prosecuting public corruption. And so we tracked down Randall Eliasson. I was a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C. for 12 years. I was the chief of the public corruption and government fraud section at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. And then since leaving the Department of Justice, I have taught a course on white-collar criminal law at George Washington University Law School. I wanted to hear from Randall because he'd written two articles in the past few months about Donald Trump and the law. In November, after the election, he wrote an article headlined The Case Against Indicting Donald Trump. And then after the Capitol Hill riot, he wrote again. And it's fair to say that he seemed to have changed his mind. I actually wouldn't say that I've changed my mind. What's changed are the circumstances. In that article, I was making a sort of general argument about the policy against indicting former presidents, uh, having an incoming president of one party prosecute the outgoing president uh, of the other party. That's uh, something we've never done in this country. Um, I mean, it's routinely done in some countries. We've, we've never done it here because of the risk of using criminal law to sort of punish political differences or policy differences and try to characterize them as a crime and use your justice system, your justice department as the president to sort of go after your political rivals. That's a real danger and something we've always tried to avoid. And in November, I argued that on balance, a lot of Trump's misconduct, although appalling, was not actually criminal. To me, just the balance came down on the side of saying, based on what we know now, there's not enough to justify a criminal prosecution unless things change. And things have changed, right? And things have changed, right? (laughs) Because then the, the second article, two months later, in the aftermath of the riot at the Capitol, was essentially, look, I I still agree with what I wrote in November, but now this is on a completely different level. This is not something where you could even potentially argue, you know, or criminalizing policy differences or, or political differences. I mean, this inciting this riot has absolutely nothing to do with any even arguable legitimate exercise of his presidential power, mm-hmm. right? This, and this is just an assault on our most fundamental institutions. And to me, That's on such another level from anything we've seen before that the balance changes. And now we're talking about something where I think it would be completely appropriate to at least investigate. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot we don't know yet, you know, in Mm -hmm. terms of emails, text messages, what other communications took place that could shed a lot more light on what happened. What of what we do know do you think clears that legal bar? Yeah, there is sort of a pattern of conduct. The weeks leading up to the rally with kind of repeated tweets and messages to his followers. You know, the one in particular was, you know, come to D.C. on January 6th, big protest, it's going to be wild, something Mm. like that. So there is the pattern of sort of repeated false claims of fraud, kind of whipping up, you know, the followers with these constant lies about the election, encouraging them to come to D.C. to fight for Donald Trump. But the main thing is the speech itself, right before the riot, whipping up the crowd for more than an hour again with the repeated lies about how the election's been stolen from them, the Democrats are defrauding the country, you've got to march down and take your country back, stop the steal. Our country has had enough, we will not take it anymore, and that's what this is all about. 
And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. I mean, the one that kind of you see a lot, and I think they included in the impeachment resolution, he says to the crowd, if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. I mean, you repeatedly tell a crowd like that, that they've got to go fight. You know, does he think they're going to walk down to the Capitol and link arms and sing Kumbaya? I mean, what does he think they're (laughs) going to do? You know, I mean, all this language, you know, certainly implying some kind of violent action to stop Congress from what it's doing uh, and suggesting it, I think, in, in the context overall, I would feel pretty comfortable arguing that that was his intent, you know, that Mm -hmm. that's this crowd ended up doing exactly what he wanted and hoped it would do, which is sort of physically try to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden as the winner of the election. You know, in the U.S., I mean, the First Amendment does protect political speech, and so it's a pretty high bar to try to prosecute somebody for speech, even if they're using sort of rhetoric about fighting. And, you know, I mean, that's not uncommon in political speeches. We need to fight for our rights, things like that. But in this case, given the, the crowd that's in front of him, the nature of the crowd in front of him, everything that led up to the speech, the rhetoric itself, and then the sort of imminence of the potential harm, it's not – he's not at a rally in Florida where he's saying nasty things about Congress. He's telling them right there, now go march down the street and stop mm-hmm. Congress. You know, mm-hmm. So imminence is an important factor in the constitutional analysis as well. And here, you know, not only was the speech designed to incite imminent violence, it actually did. <laughs> he knows this is a whipped up crowd, right? Potentially violent. And he's not trying to calm them. He's trying to rile them up even further. And then to me, one thing that I think is particularly important in trying to decide what his intent was is what he did once the rioting started. And this is actually some of the most damning things to me. Once the rioting started, the reports are that he didn't try to stop it. Mm. He was sitting in the White House, sort of enjoying it, you know, thrilled about what was happening, excited still calling members of Congress, trying to get them to stop the voting and, and, you know, overturn the election. When the mayor asked for support from the D.C. National Guard, reportedly he resisted that and and hesitated. And it was only Vice President Pence who finally agreed to send in sort of the reinforcements. And then, you know, more than two hours later, after President-elect Biden has already issued a statement calling for the violence to stop, he finally kind of grudgingly makes this brief video statement to tell the supporters to go home. But in that statement, he also says things like, you know, he repeats the lie that the election was stolen. He says, we understand you. We love you. We love you. We love you. (laughs) You're very special. We love you, but it's time to go home. So, you know, if this crowd has not done exactly what you wanted, do you record a statement saying, hey, we love you. Great job. Be Mm. proud. I know your pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. So if a prosecution was successful, what kind of penalties might be in store for Trump? What would it mean if he was convicted? And what would the charge be? The charges that I think is most likely is a crime called seditious conspiracy, which is basically a conspiracy to sort of overthrow the government or do violence against the government or use force to prevent the government from functioning or prevent the laws from being executed. So the argument would be a conspiracy to use force to stop Congress from certifying this vote, from declaring Biden the winner. And that certainly seems to pretty accurately describe what was going on here. That carries a maximum prison penalty of 20 years in prison. And so in your legal opinion, what do you think should happen? I think What should happen is once he's out of office, the Justice Department should convene a grand jury investigation Mm -hmm. to start gathering all of the information about this incident on the 6th. All the text messaging back and forth between the different parties, all the emails back and forth, having witnesses come in to testify about things that Trump did and said before, during, and after. Uh, There's a lot more information if a prosecutor was trying to piece together proof of the president's intent. And the best way to do that is by a federal grand jury. So do you think that has a a chance of being a successful prosecution if it does go ahead? Uh, I do, yes. To me, looking at the case right now, if I'm a prosecutor, I think I'm feeling pretty good about this as a potential criminal case. But there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot to be looked at before professional people actually in charge of that decision could, could make a judgment. So even as America turns the page on Trump, the story of the havoc that he wrought isn't at an end. 
Trump clears out of the White House knowing that at the very least an impeachment trial in the Senate is going to follow. No doubt that will eat into time that probably could have better been spent fighting coronavirus or firing up the US economy. And it's also highly likely that the process will end in his acquittal, not because the evidence is lacking, but because at least 17 of the 50 Republican senators would have to join the Democrats in finding him guilty. So some people, understandably, they just want to move on from Trump. But other people say it's essential for the historical record to gather and lay out the evidence of what the president did as he tried to cling to power. And apart from his own legal jeopardy, there's still so much more of the Trump effect to play out. The future of the Republican Party that he hollowed out, the state of a country so profoundly divided, and a public discourse that's now riven with lies. And Trumpism will go on, not as an ideology or a set of causes, but as a rallying point and a way of behaving and thinking. Trumpism will live on as a bad attitude, as a vessel into which people can pour their grievances. Trump drew his supporters to Washington with a tweet promising that it will be wild. And he wasn't wrong. It's been a wild and dangerous four years. The Trump era started with an assault on enemies abroad, an army of Russian hackers and trolls trying to subvert the 2016 election and to divide America. And it ends with enemies within, rioters storming the most sacred halls of American democracy to try to overturn an election, urged on by the President of the United States. And I think it's worth rewinding to the start. Remember when Trump was sworn in as president in January 2017? He stood before the dome on the Capitol and painted this bleak picture of a country of rusted factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape, of drugs and gangs and of ravaged borders. This American carnage, he called it, and he promised, we will make America safe again. Well, four years later, he leaves behind an indelible stain on American democracy, violence and death on Capitol Hill. And blood spilled at the very spot prepared for the ceremonial swearing-in of his successor, Joe Biden, as the 46th president of the United States. America turns the page, but can anyone bind up the nation's wounds? Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation, and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.